Well, as you're taking your seats, go ahead and grab your Bibles, open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. As you're turning there, let me just uh, begin this morning by asking you a question. What is your treasured possession? You know, the thing that you value beyond anything else in this world. What does your heart love more than anything in this world? What is it that you could not live without? What is it that you would be willing to die for? For most of us in this room, as we think deeply about these questions, it's not a what, but a who, isn't it? This past summer, Ronnie Alvarado, 40-year-old man living in California, was out on the water with his daughter. They were paddling a kayak, and they got out into the middle of a lake, and the kayak tipped over. There were people who witnessed this happen, and what they saw was truly amazing. Ronnie, as they were both drowning, lifted his daughter up above the water, pushing her up as he was underneath her. A bystander, a good Samaritan, saw on a, on a jet ski and came rushing over only in time to grab his daughter as Ronnie sunk to the bottom. Ronnie died giving his life for what he valued and treasured most. And our hearts, as we hear a story like this, and it's not alone, there are countless stories of those who have given their lives for those that they loved, but our hearts seem to really truly resonate with this, don't they? We resonate with this kind of a story because we understand that there is nothing that we wouldn't do to save those that we love. They are our treasured possessions, but we resonate, I believe, at a much deeper level Because whether we know it or not, stories like this and feelings like this, they fit into a much bigger story, a much grander narrative that exists all around us. You see, we are living in the middle of a story about God's great love for his people. And you see, what we find in this story is that we are what he values most. Paul has launched into this Song of praise in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, being one single sentence in the original language. His heart is simply erupting in praise as he reflects upon who God is and all the blessings that God has given to those whom he loves. And we get to the end this morning of this long run-on sentence or expression of praise, and it really comes to a beautiful climax. Paul picks up in verse 11. Let's read it together. And again, keeping the tone of this expression of praise and thanksgiving, hear the words of the apostle Paul as he praises God. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." I want us to see this morning, and I trust this would be an encouragement to your heart, and, and by the way, just consider Paul's great intention behind this first section of God's word. This is, is supposed to evoke praise in our hearts. My prayer has been that this would be true, that this would stir the affections of our heart as we consider how God views us, what he thinks of us, and what he has done for us. As we see that we are the ones he values most, I want to put this thought in front of you. This is going to guide our entire message this morning. Really, this sermon is one great point with multiple points that are bolstering this thought. And here it is, very simply, we are God's treasured possession. We are God's treasured possession. God's people are God's treasured possession. And that is what Paul is so thankful for when he thinks about his own salvation and all the blessings that have been poured upon him. He realizes that this all finds its foundation and its basis in this reality that we are God's treasured possession. 
He begins this final outburst with praise by reflecting upon the idea of inheritance or possession. You'll notice in verse 11, he says that in him, reminding us, listen, that everything we have, everything we are as followers of Christ are a result of being in him. We're unified in Christ. This is 11 times Paul uses this expression in the first, in this first handful of verses, 3 to 14, 11 times he wants to make it clear that this is all about what happens to those who are in him. This is all because we are in him, in Christ. And you see, it's in Christ, Paul says in verse 11, that we have obtained an inheritance. This concept of inheritance or possession is preeminent throughout this passage. Remember, Paul's praise is a response to all that God has done. It's a a blessing in response to the way God has already blessed us. But we need to ask this question, what is this great blessing from God for his people that has Paul's heart so inflamed with praise? And is it this same thing that ignites our hearts with praise toward God, even this morning as we gather together? Now that question is not as easily answered as you might think. You see, in fact, it is a very debatable answer, legitimately debatable. The verb that Paul uses here in verse 11, this idea that we have obtained an inheritance, it's all one word in the Greek language, and it can legitimately be translated a couple of different ways. In fact, translations that you read in the English have translated this um, one of really two different ways. First, we see here that as the ESV puts it, our translation, what we use on a Sunday morning, we have obtained an inheritance. That's the way that it's been translated into English. Now, I want you to know very clearly out the gates that this makes perfect sense. This makes sense grammatically. This is a legitimate way of translating this word or this verb that Paul uses. It makes sense theologically, and it makes sense even contextually in light of the entirety of Scripture, but also in light of what Paul is saying here in this section of Scripture. The word can speak to something that is obtained by lot. That is the literal translation, such as an inheritance that we have obtained or received that has been granted to us. This is the same kind of concept we see rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. The idea that the inheritance that the tribes of Israel received in the promised land, that God had saved a people and he promised them the great inheritance of that land and all the blessings of being in that land. The concept of an inheritance that awaits us, something that is not earned, but something that is ours because of whose we are is seen all throughout the New Testament as well. Paul says in Colossians 1.12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Peter says it like this, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There is this magnificent truth in the Christian life. Listen, that if you are adopted in the family of God, there is an inheritance awaiting you. There is something spectacular, something so wonderful, something so much greater than you can even anticipate that is ahead of you. But there's a second way to understand and to translate this word that Paul uses here that I really believe actually makes more sense of the passage. And so hear me say this, that that this first translation is not only possible, it is true in the theological sense. There is an inheritance waiting for us who are the children of God, but I believe we can translate this a much better way, and many have chosen to do that, by the way. It says this, in him we have become an inheritance. You see the difference there? It is less about the inheritance that awaits us, and it points more to the reality of who we are. We are, in fact, God's inheritance. We are his heritage or his possession. Again, just so you know, grammatically, theologically, and contextually, this is not only possible, I believe the context of this passage points to it being far more probable. You see, it's consistent with what Paul has already been emphasizing in this entire run-on sentence. Look back with me at verse 5 for just a moment. We'll gather up the first two words of verse 4. He says this, In love, 
He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I want you to see here that there is this idea that we have actually been saved not only through Christ but also to Christ. Paul says in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. There is a right way of seeing verse 5 that not only has this happened through Christ, but it is actually translated, happened to Christ. We have been saved, in other words, as adoption to himself, to God himself. That he chose us for adoption, by the way, to himself is a beautiful picture, that picture of adoption that we looked at last week, it reminds us, listen, of the treasured identity that we gain by becoming God's treasured possession. I love the picture of adoption. I want you just to think about this concept for just a minute. I know many people, maybe even in this room, have gone through the process of adopting a child. And if you know anything about the adoption process, you know that it can take a staggeringly long period of time to, to get a child, can't it? Parents go through a rigorous process of applying for adoption, of being vetted for adoption, of choosing a child to adopt. And oftentimes it's years later, and I just want you to think of this picture for a second. You know, so often the child who's being adopted, they don't have the mental uh, capability of processing the magnitude of what's happening in their life, right? For the child, it's, it's actually quite scary oftentimes. There is perhaps an excitement and anticipation, but they can't fathom all that's happening to them. They can't process it. You want to know who gains the most joy in that equation? Is it not the parents? The parents who have this deep longing to have for themselves a child, who long for a child, and that moment they finally adopt the child, the parents' hearts are bursting with joy of having acquired these children as their own treasured possession. We saw last week, Paul talks about this picture of redemption. And again, this picture of redemption reminds us of our treasured identity as those who are possessed by God. We looked last week about how this word finds its roots in the Old Testament, especially when God redeemed his people from bondage and slavery out of Egypt. We saw last week that they had been set free from sin, yes, but the most beautiful reality of their redemption was not what they were set free from, it was who they were set free to. The liberty that God offers to his children is a transfer from one kingdom and one master to another kingdom and another master. You see, before Christ, and maybe if you're not a follower of Christ today, the Bible wants you to know that your master was sin and Satan, You lived in the kingdom of darkness. But because of Christ, in and through Christ, your kingdom and your master is now God and righteousness. You were Satan's despised possession, and he was intent on your destruction. And now you are God's treasured possession, and he is intent on blessing you. The backdrop of redemption and the exodus, I believe, is the most persuasive argument in favor of translating it like this, that we are God's possession or God's heritage or God's inheritance. And the strength of this view is that it has Old Testament precedent where Israel is called time and time and time again God's possession. Let me show you just a a sampling of this. There are so many verses we could go to. They're all on the screen behind us for the sake of of time, and we're going to move through them quickly. Look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Listen to chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people... Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people. Look at this. I love for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And perhaps one of the most important, Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 9 when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. 
When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. All the nations are given over, as Paul will say later, to the powers and the principalities of the world. That was what happened. But God, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of man's rebellion, he said, I will choose for myself a people out of all the peoples of the earth, and I will call them my heritage and my treasured possession. In Exodus 19.5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. It's this Old Testament backdrop that is so critical for understanding the radical, listen, unification in Christ that Paul has been speaking of. And here's the framework that you have to keep in mind. Do you remember how Paul ended the previous section? He talked about how God is going to bring all things under the headship of Jesus Christ, uniting all things, things in heaven and things on earth, the merging together of what has been broken by sin. You see, the picture is what is seemingly irreconcilable is now reconciled in and through Jesus Christ alone. And as we'll see, this is really Paul's introduction to the the rest of the letter and its common practice as you're writing an introduction to introduce topics that you are going to cover in greater depth and detail later on as you continue to go. And by the way, that is exactly what Paul is going to do. He is going to look at a very important topic. He's going to look at what the believers in the church still were struggling with and what they believed was truly irreconcilable the Jews and the Gentiles becoming one. There's a strong Jewish-Gentile component to this entire letter, and for good reason. In the very first days of the church, in the first century church, particularly at the onset of the church, it was a radical notion. This is the, 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 the framework you have to keep in mind as you read through so much of the, the, the letters to the early churches. It was a radical notion that Gentiles could be included in the people of God. The Jewish people couldn't fathom it. They couldn't process it for the longest time. In fact, when you get to Acts 15, as we saw, they had to host a whole council to figure out how this was even possible and how they were going to kind of reconcile this in the life of the church. Is this really what God is doing? It's almost more fair to say that the Jewish people could more readily fathom the heavens and the earth being reconciled than they could the Jews and the Gentiles being reconciled. This is simply not an easy pill for any Jew to swallow in the first century because of the nationalistic zeal and pride that had been bred into them that they had long embraced. There was a sense when the Jews thought about themselves, and by the way, many still today, many faithful Jews, what they will tell you is that we are the people of God. It's us. That's our God. He called us to himself. We are God's people. All the other nations are given over to the gods of this world, the the evil influences, but we are God's precious, treasured possession. We are his inheritance. But through the gospel, Paul is wanting to emphasize here, as he will later in chapters 2 and even into 3, that while, yes, the Jews are God's chosen people, the gospel is so radical that it not only has saved the Jews, it has saved the Gentiles as well. There is one new man that God has formed in Christ. It was always God's plan to call a people who were not his people, as Isaiah says. It was always God's plan to give to Jesus a sheep, as he says in John chapter 11, that are not of his fold. In verse 14 you'll see this concept picked back up, and I'm just going to touch upon it now. you have to wait a little bit till we get there. He says this, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Again, the, the translation issues are really sticky here. This is one legitimate way, way to translate it, but better still, I believe, is this, that it's speaking of our inheritance until, you can translate it this, until the redemption of the possession. Until God's possession is fully and finally redeemed. We'll get there, so just hang on to that thought. 
I just want you to see how this book ends, why I believe what Paul is saying. So you see what God has gone through, Paul is saying, is Paul unfolds all the blessings of God to his people, all of this effort that God has gone through, given us redemption, the forgiveness of sins, adopted us as sons, sealed us with the Spirit, predestined us before the foundations of the world. And while we possess all of these benefits, including a future inheritance, More importantly, we have become God's inheritance because of all he has done for us. We are his inheritance. We are his heritage. We are his treasured possession. And this, you say, why does this matter so much? Well, I believe this matters immensely for how we live our lives here and now, for the kind of hope that we have, the kind of anticipation that we have, for how we live a life of worship and adoration to the God who saved us. If I can say it like this, it'll be up on the screen. This is why it's so important. How we are viewed by God is far more important than what we get from God. How we are viewed by God is far more important, immeasurably more important than what we get from God. But you see, our tendency in the Christian life is to love God a lot of times because of what we get from God, to go to God because of what we get from God. God wants a paradigm shift in so many of our hearts and minds. He doesn't want it to be all about what we get from God. He wants it to be who we are in him, how he sees us because of what he's done for us in Christ. And I know this has been a major theme of the last few weeks, but I feel like we struggle with this idea of identity so much, this identity crisis that we daily struggle with sometimes. We need to see how God sees us. We need to embrace that every single day. Let me help you try and understand the importance of this. You see, the child that has every possible material blessing but knows not the love of the parents has nothing compared to the child who lives in physical poverty but knows an abundance of love from the parents. Isn't that true? I had a conversation with my daughter this week, and she was talking to a friend and just so excited about um, the, the way that you know, she was looking forward to getting home and being with, with her family. My daughter's a real sweetheart and she just, she, she so loves her family, but she was telling her friend about how we get home and we, we eat together and we read together and we talk together and we laugh together and we pray together. She was just going on and on and her friend just, uh, un, you know, I, I think really sadly says, just says, well, I don't, you, I don't get to see my dad very much. He's always so busy working. He's just, he works. I get to see him sometimes on the weekend, but most times no. And, and it was just, a, I just, it struck me in that moment that here, listen, we have a picture of a father who is providing all of the material benefits to their child. But we, I saw just in that moment what the child longed for more than anything was to be in the presence of her father, was to know the love of her father. That, you see, is so identity-shaping for a young child, right? We understand that. The more a child feels loved and embraced, not because of their performance in the family, but because of who they are in the family, They they are my child, you're my daughter, you're my son, I will love you no matter what you do, right? You see how identity shaping that is? You see how that child is going to flourish and grow? You see how their behavior, their attitude in life is going to be immeasurably different from the child who can never measure up, who doesn't have that proximity and that relationship and know and experience that love. But can you see this church? Listen, this matters because we are children of God. And if we don't grasp our identity that we are loved by the Father, not based on our performance, not based on who we are, but because of whose we are, then we will constantly struggle to live this Christian life faithfully. It will feel painful and frustrating rather than filled with joy and delight. So just hear this, church. You, because you are children, children of God, you are more loved than you can possibly imagine. And you can't do anything to earn that love. That's what he's making very clear to us too coming up. But you can do nothing to lose that love. If you are living primarily, on the other hand, for what you get from God, you will tend to treat God like a cosmic ATM. Do they have those anymore? 
What I put in is what I should get out. But if you are primarily living from how God views you, you will long to obey him as an act of worship filled with gratitude and love for all that he has done for you, not for what you can do for him. The rewards we get from God, the benefits we receive from being a child of God, by the way, are not wrong. They're just not the main primary motivator. This is a matter of priority. But I just want you to know, in this case, what you get from God and who you are before God, they're ultimately the exact same thing. You see, in being God's inheritance, God gets you. But you want to know what your inheritance is? You get God. You see how they're the same thing? They're the exact same thing. And Paul, I love how Paul says this, you know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he's talking about, you know, being absent from the body, right? If he has to die and, and going to heaven, you know, so many Christians are just like, I can't wait to get to heaven. And you don't even know why you want to get there. It's going to be awesome. Streets are going to be paved with gold. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a family reunion. You know what Paul says? To be absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. He's like, you know what? If I've got to go home, he says later, if I've got to go home, I get to go home to be with the Lord. When Paul thinks of heaven, the one thought that captivates his heart and mind is the glory of his inheritance. What awaits him is to stand face to face with the one who loves him immeasurably more than anyone else in the universe ever could. And he can't wait to be in the presence of one who loves him that much. I, I, I want us to get the sense that it is, listen, immeasurably more important to be in the presence of the one who loves us like that. God gets us, and as a result, we get God. It can't get better than this, church. We are his treasured possession, and that is every reason for us to say that at the end of the day, he too, therefore, is our treasured possession. Now, is that true in your life? Is it your treasured possession this morning? You say, well, Paul wants to drive this thought deep into our hearts, and so let's allow him to do that. You see, we are his treasured possessions, and that's been settled by sovereign, the sovereignty of God. So how can I be sure that I am one of God's treasured possessions? How can I know that I'm loved like that? How can I know that that's what awaits me one day, that I get to be in the presence of the God who loves me like that? Paul says essentially, listen, this has been settled by the sovereignty of God. And he wants to provide for you and for me a great sense of assurance this morning in our hearts. He doesn't want us wavering or wondering or waffling. If we are in Christ, what awaits us is sure. It has been settled by the sovereignty of God, and he launches now into this section. He says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul has already talked about this concept. He's just kind of repeating certain aspects of what he finds so glorious and so beautiful in the Christian life. In love, he said in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. What Paul is ultimately saying is that you and I have become his treasured possessions not by our choice, but by his choice. Again, this is to heighten our worship this is to elevate our love and adoration and gratitude and praise of him. This is to give us a greater and increasing sense of how worthy he is of all of ourselves and all that we have to offer. God made us his possessions before the foundation of the earth was laid. He destined us to know him by being known by him. Verse 9, he has made this statement, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. And we saw that part of that involves, or the grand scope of that involves a cosmic reality of uniting all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth, but at the center of all that is uniting you and I to himself. This whole passage is full of references to God's will. We are predestined according to the purpose of him. You see, as Christians, we are what we are because of what God has chosen to make us. 
There's nothing special about being chosen by the way. Sorry, there's something special about being chosen by the way. I I want you to just consider this concept, and I I love this picture about being born into the family of God. The very essence of being a child means that you did not choose to be there, correct? Right? It was somebody else's choice to bring you into existence. I love that thought when you think of your salvation, what God has done for you. There's something truly beautiful about this idea of being chosen. I mean, I just stop and just think, oh, who am I? Who am I that God would choose me? Why would God choose me? There's a million thoughts that go through my mind. You know, when I, when I think of my wife, this often comes to my mind as well. One of the things I'm constantly amazed by as I think about my wife is that she chose me, right? Like out, of, out of all the people, out of all the guys in the world that she could have married, she chose me. I walked, or she walked down the, the, the aisle, and I stood there, and I remember thinking, I can't believe she chose me. I think most days she probably thinks the exact same thing. <laughs> Do you ever wonder if God feels this way about you? Why would God choose me? You ever wonder, like, God shouldn't have chosen me. I mean, can he not see me? I mean, look who I am. Look what I've done. God, you shouldn't choose me. You think God ever thinks like that? You want the answer is no. There's never a time when God looks down at you and all of your sin and all of your filth and all of your mistakes and all of your failures and thinks, man, I really messed up on that one. I can't believe I chose him. Never is there a moment in the mind of God where he thinks that about his children. You know, sometimes we feel that about our children, right? Like, uh, you ever look at your wife like, that's your child. (laughs) God looks at us in all of our mess and says, that's my child. And I love my child. This is not a New Testament concept, by the way. The idea of God's choosing people for himself, it all started with Adam. Again, just consider, did Adam choose to be in relationship with God? Did Adam choose to exist? No, God said, I will choose to make a man and a woman for myself to live in relationship with me. And boom, he spoke and he took the dust of the earth and he breathed life into them and there are his treasured possessions, Adam and Eve, humanity. Yes, they sin, but even in their sin, I believe there is a powerful picture of the love of God who comes to them in their sin, who lovingly covers them in their sin and promises that one day he will restore them and reconcile them because of their sin. Abraham, he was a pagan idolater. He wasn't seeking God. God, God went and sought him. Isaac and Jacob, I mean, God made these promises. The nation of Israel, I mean, just we see it so clearly through the pages of Scripture. God looks at them not because they were anything impressive or mighty or strong or wise. And he says, you, in fact, just the opposite. You're nothing, and I am choosing you for myself. All of these things and so many more in the scriptures picture God's sovereign election and all according to his grand purpose who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There are few greater statements of God's sovereignty in all the scriptures than that one. Just listen to these words again. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. R.C. Sproul, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I love just how he phrases this, there's not a single random molecule in the universe. Everything under the sovereign control of God. This one statement reveals the cosmic scope of God's plan and God's control. And you say, really? Really, God controls all things according to the counsel? What about sin, right? How does God work on that problem? Well, that's a whole other sermon, but let me just tell you that Joseph says something profound to his brothers. You remember? He looks at his brothers who are caught in their wicked evil. And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You know, I I heard this past week that there are gifted musicians, even um, professional musicians, concert pianists who are following um, Uh, Beautiful pieces of music that are meant to be played perfectly, but most professional musicians never play everything perfectly. Did you know that? 
Very rarely in a concert that you go to, especially the longer it goes, I'm sure, do they play everything absolutely perfectly. Do they hit every note the right time or the way it's supposed to be or not miss a note or slip in an extra note by, by accident? But you know, to the untrained ear, you never know that that's even occurred. You see, gifted musicians have an ability to take their mistakes and to roll them into a beautiful transition that ends up completing the piece. And to most ears, they don't know any better. All they hear is one long, beautiful piece of music. The off notes become new notes, slipped into the greater piece. Don't press that analogy too far. While God neither makes mistakes nor has to adjust to make transitions, what I want you to understand is that God does take our mistakes, our sin, and he uses them to accomplish his great purposes. There's great comfort in understanding that your salvation and everything you do is under the scope of God's sovereignty. I want you to hear this morning, this is such a beautiful reality. If you're in Christ, Christ you, know, we talk, you know, people talk about accidental pregnancies or mistakes, right? Oh, that child was a mistake. There are no mistakes or accidents in God's family. Every one of you was planned before the foundation of the world to be a part of God's great, beautiful family. No matter how you may feel because of your sin and your failures and the guilt and the shame of your life, listen, every one of you was brought into the family of God on purpose. He chose you. He thought of you as he hung on the cross. He wasn't hoping you would choose him. He didn't just know you were going to choose him. He planned on you choosing him, and he actually made it possible. You see, you are his treasured possession, and that is settled by sovereignty. But know this as well. You are his treasured possession that has been saved by the grace of God. Yes, it's settled by the sovereignty of God, but as I said, all of this is, is even only possible because of the grace of God. And here, Paul says in verses 12 and 13, he says, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, and in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. I just want you to focus again on, on the little word that begins so much of what Paul launches into that's in him. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth. There is a, a note of grace here that Paul wants us to take note of that the only reason that you have come to faith in Christ is because of him. It's because of what he has done. It's because of how he has planned this from the foundation of the earth. It's because he has worked all things according to the counsel of his will. He has made sure that you would choose him because he had first chosen you. Paul in the process is highlighting, by the way, that there is only one way to be saved. Again, remember the backdrop here to this passage, that the Jews believed that they and they alone were God's chosen people. The sal that salvation was for the nation of Israel. This is what they believed. That the Messiah was Israel's great hope, not the hope of the world, Israel's great hope. God was going to come back and reconcile and restore Israel, and so that Paul here refers to we who were the first to hope in Christ. I want you to hear that with a distinctively Jewish flavor to it. This idea of the first to hope in Christ has roots in the Old Testament concept of belief and faith. Now there's something interesting happening here in verses 12 and 13. There's a shift in the pronouns. You know, pronoun you, me, we, our... And what he does here is fascinating. He's been talking collectively up to this point about every the blessing that all the believers have in Christ. Okay? We all receive all of these magnificent blessings. And now here he seems to diverge and begin to speak to two different groups of people. And you'll notice that in verse 12 there. So that we, he says, who were the first to hope, there's the category. There is a group of people who were the first to hope in Christ. 
And then there's a second category of people that he transitions to in verse 13. And you also, when you believe, when you heard the word of truth and believed the gospel. So all of a sudden, Paul is making a little bit of a distinction, but I want you to see the only reason he's doing so is to highlight what they actually have in common. There was only one way that anyone is saved. And this has been understood, by the way, these two groups of people, um, it it can legitimately um, be understood, and some people take it like this, that Paul is talking about we, as in him and the people who are with him as he writes this letter, and you who are there in Ephesus in the surrounding area that this letter is going to eventually go to. But many, and arguably most, have taken this to be a distinction that Paul is making between we, the first we would hope being Jewish believers, and you also being Gentile believers. And that's the way I I think makes sense because of this backdrop that we've already looked at, this Old Testament backdrop is the people of God. And and again, they thought that we were the first to hope. They believed that this was a Jewish hope. Paul wrote in Romans 1, verse 16, that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. Remember that? Jesus came first to the house of Israel, to the Jewish people. The gospel, even as it burst onto the scene in the book of Acts, goes primarily out the gates to the Jewish people. It was predominantly a Jewish faith to begin with, and it took years, up to 12 12 to 15 years, before Gentile inclusion started becoming a reality in the first church. And even when it did, even when Gentiles were included, you remember, if you were here last year when we went through the book of Acts, how radical this was, how difficult it was for the believers to process that God was actually saving Gentiles as well? This early church in Ephesus and the surrounding areas, remember, all of these churches began in synagogues. They were predominantly Jewish at the beginning, but right now, as things have begun to unfold, more and more Gentiles have been included into the family of God, and they're still wrestling with this tension. That's why Paul's going to address the Jew-Gentile distinction later on in this book. He's still helping them wrestle through all of this. They had such a hard time envisioning God uniting the Jews and the Gentiles. Like I said, much easier for them to grasp heaven and earth being united than to grasp Jew and Gentile being united. It was irreconcilable in their mind. You know, kind of like pineapple on pizza, right? It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> oh, boo, I, got, I knew I'd get that. That's good. Okay, fine, fine. For the Jews, it was like having bacon or ham on pizza, okay? It's like, you can't do that. That's devastating, right? Paul's emphasis here is that Jew and Gentile are now both God's treasured possessions, and they've come in the same way. This is the evidence. They've they've had to come in through the same gate. It's all happened the same way. There is not a salvation for the Jews and there's salvation for the Gentiles. It's all in Christ, and we we know how God does this. It's by grace through faith, isn't it? This was, by the way, part of the mystery that Paul is going to unpack later on in this book. He says this was a, they, couldn't, they didn't know this was going to happen. In fact, this term right here, the first to hope, it is, by the way, being used synonymously with this concept of faith. So this idea of hope, and, and in verse 13, the idea that you also, when you believed, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, faith, belief, He's saying these are the two same concepts, but that, again, that word hope has a distinctively Jewish flavor, I believe, in this context. In fact, if you want to turn with me, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and the verses are going to be on the screen behind me if it's too much effort to turn pages. It's nice to hear the sound of pages turning in church, isn't it? Some of you are like, well, I'm scrolling. Okay. (laughs) All right, that's fine. We love you too. You see, the the idea of hope is actually a part of the biblical definition of faith. And here's what he says here. Now, faith is the assurance, listen to this, of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation 
Now, I just want you to stop there. Remember, the book of Hebrews is a distinctively Hebrew book. And what he's highlighting now here is he's highlighting, don't you get it, that there was a time prior to Christ where people were being saved. But do you want to see, do you want to see this? this? is so fascinating. What they were hoping in is Christ. They believed in the promises of God. They believed that God was going to bring about what he promised to do through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believed that God was going to bring the Messiah. And so they were hoping, hoping for the things, right? The, the, this idea that the conviction of things not seen. And then Paul, go, excuse me, the author of Hebrews, he goes on to lay out a case in Hebrews chapter 11 for this idea of this hope being equivalent with faith. And he goes on to talk about the faith of Abraham, the faith of Abel, the faith of Noah. I mean, it's on and on and on by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And he comes all the way to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And look at what he says. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of these Old Testament saints who had hoped for the promise of the Messiah to come, who believed the promise of God by faith, we're surrounded by all of them. What happened to them? They too are saved. Listen to this. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here it is. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who's going to bring it to fruition, but make no mistake about it, he is the center of all of the Old Testament faith and all of their hope. It is all gathered up in Jesus Christ. The Jews prior to Christ were promised the hope of salvation through the Messiah, but those prior to Christ only hoped for what God had promised. They believed in Jesus by clinging to the promise it is in him. It is by grace that they were chosen and could even express this faith. So Paul lumps himself in. Look, Paul was anticipating as a faithful Jew the promised Messiah. And the early church was filled with those who had hoped for the Messiah. You see, he came to the Jews first because they were the ones who were primed for the Messiah, right? They had read about the promises of God. They were anticipating the fulfillment of the promises of God. And so the gospel goes to them first. But by the grace of God, it doesn't only go to them, it goes to all of the nations. That's the whole point of the book of Acts. And so Paul turns and he says, yes, we who are the first to hope, but you also, he looks to the Gentile Christians in the church, these two that have been merged into one. And he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, when you heard of the fullness of salvation, when you saw the, the messianic hope of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, and when you saw what the word said about him, that he would suffer and die, that he would take upon himself the sins of the world, that he would rise victorious from the grave, that he would be exalted to the right hand of the Father, and when you believed in him, Though God chooses us, we still must choose him. We must receive him by faith. In him, it is by grace, through faith. But, but can I say it like this, just so there's clarity in our hearts and minds? It'll be on the screen as well. Salvation is the grace-enabled response to the gospel of grace. Don't ever separate the idea that you chose God from the idea that God graciously enabled you to do so. And when you realize this, when you see the lengths that God would go to to go after you, praise abounds. You see, if we all came in by the same door, it doesn't matter when we came in, we all received the same benefits. God doesn't have any favorite children. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Well, what an important message. We're going to get to this later on in the book of Ephesians. But let me just say, look, in the midst right now, sadly, in the midst of so much racial, racial turmoil, we're reminded the gospel is the only thing that can truly unite us. We aren't identified in the church of Jesus Christ by our skin color. We're not identified by our ethnicity. We're not identified by our social status. We're not identified, listen, by our past baggage and sin. We're not identified by any of that. We're identified by our union with Jesus Christ. 
Paul is saying this is worth our praise. And finally, he wants us to make note of this, that we are God's treasured possession and we are secured for the glory of God. You notice that I skipped this part because I wanted to gather it up here, but he says, we who are the first to hope in Christ that we might be to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, he says, those, and in 13, he says, we believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we all acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And I, I think in one sense, what Paul is saying is very helpful for us. Don't you see? Yeah, he saved the Jews. They were his chosen people, and he called them out of slavery and bondage, listen, to the praise of his glory. But then he looked at the nations, and he invited them in the same way. He included them in his family, and he did it all for the same exact purpose, to the praise of his glory. But he speaks here of the role of the Holy Spirit in making us God's treasured possessions. And it is so powerful. You see, he says, when we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This was the Spirit that was promised in the new covenant where God promised he would take out our heart of stone and he'd put in a heart of flesh. This was the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated on that Passover meal with his disciples as he spoke of his upcoming death on the cross. It was by the shedding of blood that the new covenant was brought in. It was through the shedding of blood that the Spirit of God was poured into our hearts. Remember when Jesus told his disciples, go and wait for my Spirit that will come from above. That promised Holy Spirit, promised in the Old Testament and the New Testament Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. He says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul has already talked about the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, and I talked about how that, that refers to the Holy Spirit's presence within us, that indwelling presence of the Spirit. This is... T- this, excuse me, to, was, too, was seen as something for Israel. When Israel thought about the new covenant, the promises made to them about the new covenant, they thought, this is for us, this is for us. And, and when you read Scripture in the, the Old Testament, what you, can, what you can say is this, it was not less than that, but it was certainly more than that. Paul says the gift of the Holy Spirit is evidence of the salvation and security that Gentiles share with the Jews. Both of us saved. Both of us received the same seal of the Holy Spirit. A seal, by the way, was a mark of ownership and authenticity. That's what a seal represented in the ancient world and even in some senses today. Cattle and even slaves were branded with a seal by their masters in order to indicate to whom they belonged. Do you see this again, this picture of possession? The spirit within you identifies you as being owned by God, as being his treasured possession. But those seals were external. God's seal is in the heart. He puts his spirit within his people. He marks us off as his own. And this was a radical, stunning reality. Remember in the book of Acts when they're, they're talking about Gentile inclusion and Gentiles being saved, and they hold this council in Acts chapter 15. Remember, Peter, Peter himself had been sent by God. Remember the, the vision of the blanket coming down with all the different unclean animals, and Peter realized that God was saying, oh my goodness, the gospel is going to the Gentiles as well. They have this massive council to try and sort this out. And I love what Peter says in Acts 15, 8. He says this, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, affirming them as included, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. That was the authenticating mark that the Gentiles, too, received this great hope. Did they have the Spirit? Did they get the Spirit, too? Yeah, just like we did. Okay, I guess they're included. He sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. Then notice this, our guarantee. The Spirit of God is our guarantee. In ancient commercial transactions, this signified, this word signified this idea of a first installment, a deposit, a down payment, or a pledge that pays a part of the purchase price in advance. 
But instead of this concept, sometimes we think, well, you, you know, you put a, a, a part of it down and then later you'll come back and pay the whole thing and get it. Uh, you need to see this more like a, a mortgage, okay? The first installment of your home payment. Right? The moment you pay your fir- that first payment, that guarantee that you put down, it is actually the first installment of the purchase price and you receive in full what you have purchased then and there. As Paul speaks to these Jewish and Gentile believers, he shifts back to this we and our. Do you notice this in verse 14? He says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? You know, Paul says, look, the Jews came in the same way to the praise of glory. The Gentiles, listen, you've been included. All of us together are in this now. And now speak of our inheritance, our guarantee. There's no distinction in what we receive from God. We all receive the same future blessings and then we receive, receive, by the way, the same current foretaste of what awaits all those who are in Christ until we, we acquire possession of it. It has here, but let me again say, I think a, a better rendering of this is until the redemption of the possession. And here the redemption concerns God's possession. So there were two redemptions, or more accurately, two phases of redemption that Paul speaks of in these first verses, verses 3 through 14. He's already talked about our redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and now he talks about a greater redemption. The second phase of redemption that awaits all those who are in Christ. This will set us free from the presence of sin, we are already set free from sin's penalty and power, but not yet from its presence and temptations. Amen? But in the meantime, we have this initial installment, this down payment, the ministry of the Holy Spirit as our portion. Again, see this, your inheritance, this installment is this reality that you, by the grace of God, get God. So why has God done all of this? To the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul keeps repeating this kind of refrain. Three times now Paul has punctuated his statements with this refrain. All of this leading to one ultimate place. Paul sees everything he said as a heart-stirring call to worship the one who is worthy. And this beautiful phrase needs to be unpacked really quickly. You see, the glory of God is the revelation of God. And the glory of his grace is his self-disclosure as a gracious God to his creation. To live to the praise of the glory of his grace is both to worship him by our words and deeds as the gracious God he is, but it is also to cause others to see and to praise him too. Why does God want our praise, you might ask? Well, there's plenty of reasons, but let me just give you a couple. First, because it's right and just. It's right that God gets our praise. He is deserving of our praise. And we get this on a human level, don't we? We all get upset when we're watching an award show and the award goes to the wrong person, don't we? No! It deserved to go to that person. We all love to stand and clap when somebody is worthy of praise. We all love to cheer when somebody has done something worthy of praise. Nobody is more worthy and deserving of praise than the king of heaven and earth. But can I just tell you this too? Us giving praise to God is not just the most appropriate and deserving thing for him. It is actually the most appropriate and greatest thing for us. It is just and right, but it is also designed by God for our greatest joy. C.S. Lewis put this so wonderfully. This is a little bit of a longer quote, so bear with me, but he put it so masterfully. He asks this question, why do the psalmists continually call us to praise? You know, when you're reading through the psalms, it's it's always there. Praise God, praise God, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. He says it like this. He says, I have never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Just think about that statement. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. I mean, you just think about that. If you're anything like me, the first thing you do when you get up in the morning is take a sip of that coffee and you say, hallelujah, what a savior. (laughs) 
There's like something so good about the things we enjoy. We have to tell, some, tell somebody about it. We have to make it clear with audible expressions how good something is, don't we? C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the world rings with praise. He says, lovers praising their mistress. He doesn't mean that in a moral sense, by the way. Like Romeo praising Juliet and vice versa. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historic personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? What he's hitting on here is so, so important to our worship of God and to our own personal satisfaction. The psalmist is telling everyone to praise God. And when we do, we are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care most about. Praise fulfills and completes our enjoyment. You see that? It punctuates our enjoyment. It's the culmination of our enjoyment of all that we love and value of what is precious and treasured in our hearts. The more satisfied we are in God, the more God is glorified in us. What if praise is the culmination of all joy and God is the most praiseworthy being in the universe? Then, listen, then the most gracious thing he can do is call us to acknowledge and to enjoy his glory. The most appropriate thing we can do is respond in passionate worship and praise to complete our joy and to give him what he so rightfully deserves.